that I couldn't let them open this place again. Could I? Not after what happened. Oh, my sweet, innocent Jason. My only child. Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we have zero plans to visit Camp Crystal Lake. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you are new to the show, welcome. In real life, the Final Girls put on events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. On the show, though, we take a horror trope, rip it apart, rummage around in its thematic entrails, and figure out why it works, why it doesn't, and what it says about wider horror culture, which is a really pretentious way of saying that we just talk about horror movies in depth. In this fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror, how it's evolved, and why teenagers, and especially teenage girls, make some of the most compelling protagonists of the genre. We are tracing a line from the original slasher films of the 70s to the most recent horror movies. And this will be going on until June next year. (laughs) But before we dive into our film this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK for updates, event announcements, and a lot of silly horror memes. We also have a Patreon account where you can support our work should you choose to and get occasional bonus episodes. Since we're now officially in spooky season, just wanted to do a reminder, I mentioned this last week too, if you are London-based, you can come and see us record a special edition of this podcast live on the 20th of October at the Prince Charles Cinema. We're going to be hosting a 35mm screening of Wes Craven's Scream with our friends over at Evolution of Horror. And directly after the screening, we'll be recording a live episode with our pal, the extraordinary Becky Dark. There are less than 80 tickets left, I'm told, so don't delay. They will get snapped up pretty quickly. And back to today's episode, we are covering another one of the OG slashers, the action franchise of horror. Because before they sent Jason into space, before they made it supernatural and tried to rip off Carrie, before even the hockey masks showed up, there was just little old Friday the 13th. If you're new to the show and have never seen the original Friday the 13th before, do yourself a favor, go and watch it before you listen to this episode because we get um, a little bit passionate about certain members of the Voorhees family. And joining me on this episode is our very own Layla Latif, film critic for Almost Everywhere and editor of Bloody Women, which is our editorial arm, which you should absolutely read. We publish newly commissioned essays every Wednesday, and you can be the first to read them if you subscribe to our newsletter. And with all of that said and all of that plugged, please enjoy our take on Friday the 13th. Layla, welcome back. How are you doing? 
I'm doing good. I'm quite excited to be here for this episode. When I was kind of thinking of all the films you were covering this season, this kind of feels like almost like the platonic ideal of teen slasher. You know oh. what I mean? Like I think it like with so many things that we assume the kind of teen horror genre to be, this is you know like almost the perfect example of it. I'm not saying it's a perfect film. I just think it, it's like the most. <laughs> the most teen yeah <laughs> the most teen the most horror the most kind of replicated the most uh you know pure in a way interesting i mean i'm definitely gonna unpack that but i do remember mm. when i sent you the list you were like oh i need to take this very seriously which ones do i pick <laughs> <laughs> i did I did. yeah I, yeah, I take all of these things terribly seriously, <laughs> especially when it comes to you. I wouldn't ever want to, you know, give you my B game. You've never given me your B game. Aw, this is nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to have a little a little digital loving through yeah. recording software in, in different ends of the planet, but co- coalescing around this, the most teen of the teen horror films. Yeah. Um, it's fun you mentioned that, actually, because I was... When I was putting together the list, and I think we had this chat as well offline when I was doing that. And then when Azora and I recorded Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was looking at all these iconic slashes. I'm like, these have these are teen movies, but they're not really spoken about. Well, Friday the Thirteenth is Halloween is, but especially with like Texas Chainsaw and and a few of the other ones. I'm like, these are the daddies of the teen horror genre we should be talking about them together not just the slashes but like i want to talk about the teenagers at the heart of them was that an excuse to just talk about the original slasher films maybe a little bit but they all kind of came around within a decade yeah marked the whole genre it's funny because kind of i guess everything gets accused of just being like a copy of everything else. Mm. And like recently, one of the worst film Twitter discourses I've ever seen was that uh, Halloween was just a ripoff of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh my God. That's not even a discourse. That's just plain old ignorance. That is batshit stupid. Yeah. It's where I I kind of have a rule to not get engaged in film Twitter discourse, but that was, I I was tempted by that one because I was fucking furious. Uh, but yeah, but this one is kind of a ripoff, to be fair. <laughs> Very like, true. Well, it's not a ripoff, but this is clearly like you see Halloween's success and mm-hmm. then they try to replicate it in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's very strategically made, but let's get into Friday the 13th. And before we do, can you can you briefly summarize what this film is about for anyone who hasn't seen it in a little while? Okay, so there is um, a terrible incident where a young, uh, shall we say, differently abled, it's not really specified, boy called Jason drowns. The following year, two campers, uh, sorry, two camp counsellors are murdered whilst they're having sex, and then the camp closes down for 21 years, and then they decide to reopen it. A new bunch of camp counsellors come to start getting it ready, Um and uh, they slowly get picked off one by one. Perfect. Very, very good. So tell me, what is your relationship with this film? Is this like, one of your one of your favorite slashers? When did you first see it and so on? 
I honestly don't really know because I think that there's something that is so parodied and replicated. It's mm. hard to even like have a sense of like, when did I see this? When did I see the Simpsons take on this? When did I see like all the <laughs> imitators of this and something? So like, I, I kind of just feel like I've always known of Friday yes. the 13th, but it's definitely been a while. So it was really fun to rewatch it yesterday. And my husband was super up for watching it with me as well. And it, it was quite different from kind of how I'd remembered it but I've always got this theory that like nobody actually sees Psycho for the first time because we all see versions of Psycho a million times before we see Psycho and I feel that that's also true of Friday the 13th. That is so on the nose because there's a couple of things that one is that I you made me think instantly of this Molly Haskell quote that I read a a, a, a little while ago um, where she says there's always two films, the actual film that you see and the film that you remember, and I'm paraphrasing it. And and it's I kind of feel the same way. As I rewatched it this morning and I was trying to think, like, when did I first watch this film? Because I look at the shots and I remember specific shots and I was like, but I remember seeing this in Scary Movie. I remember seeing this in The Simpsons. Definitely, I think, before I saw Friday the 13th. And then it's so wrapped up in the franchise as well that you're like, this is a com kind of a very different film from the subsequent films. I think I might have even seen some of the uh, some of the sequels before I actually saw the original. And for once, I kind of cannot remember how or when I first saw Friday the 13th, the actual kind of first film. It, and it's because of that, like, there's so many elements of it that became culturally iconic or reused and parodied and all of that. That I'm like, I feel like I've seen it, but I think I've also just made up the film in my head from what I know of it, both visually and, and like, this, and narratively. Yeah, and I think, like, Wes Craven makes that joke in, uh, in Scream, where Drew Barrymore is yes. Attacked, and it's just like, who's the bad guy of Friday the 13th? And she says, Jason, and that is wrong. <laughs> it is wrong. I love that. And it kind of, uh, but also it kind of really made me remember one thing. I did actually know someone um, who had never seen Psycho and didn't know the twist or anything about it. No, they didn't know the shower scene, nothing. Nothing. So wow. I got to show this person Psycho for the first time. And I was like, this is actually very special to see, to show someone a film that has been so widely, you know, discussed, parodied, revealed, everything. Like it, it seemed almost like a miracle to find someone who had n was experiencing Psycho completely fresh. Without... Yeah, because I assume for that you'd have to go to some like remote Amazonian village or <laughs> Nah man, just Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> so um I mean you kind of mentioned it at the start, and I want to kind of start with that again. You called it like the perfect, the most teen, the most slasher, the most horror film. Now what makes it this epitome of the of the teen slasher? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot. So I think that, you know, you have kind of your Texas Chainsaw Massacres and your Halloweens, and mm. you know, and often you'll rewatch those, you'll be like, wow, this is just, you know, when you rewatch them, it's just like, this is even better than, mm. than, than what I have in my head. And Halloween is like truly terrifying. 
but like there's a sort of like perfect alchemy and like you know exact things and it's happening with like image and soundtrack and suspense that makes those things like almost impossible to replicate Mm -hmm. this is replicatable (laughs) (laughs) and i wonder why that's why there's so many more versions of this very familiar thing and as a result it almost became more influential because Mm -hmm. it's like you nobody can you can't just get some kind of cheap production and, you know, some, you know, reasonably competent director and do what John Carpenter does. Hmm. But you can, you can, this is achievable. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the relatable, iconic horror film. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what, like, as I was, as you were speaking, I was like, you're very right. And I think perhaps the reason why it's because it was kind of designed to be a replica. It was inspired by the success of Halloween. Like a lot of the the decisions in the making of the first film were like, we want to achieve maximum commercial success. There's sort of less pretension to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I and I mean, I would say the two areas where I do think it does distinguish itself mm. is that I do think that the practical effects are good. Um, and I do think that the whole plot twist with Mrs. Voorhees as a as as the villain is mm. great. But it's funny that then as we kind of went on in this franchise and kind of you almost do like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, those yes. are the things that went away and we ended up with some like real bullshit by the end. I know, and I, and I really want to get into that proper, but Let's let's start with the actual like horror of it. The mm-hmm. all the the rules and the tropes that I think you're right, it kind of builds on what Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre had done before it, but it adds more to it. And I think and I wanna kinda of talk about the teen aspect of it a little bit. Like who are the camp counselors? Like who are they? What's the dynamic between them? Like what how are the teens represented in this film, do you think? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm obviously modern sex positive lens that I, for the most part, found them like really quite sweet. Like, I mean, you have your your kind of lone teen, the mm-hmm. girl, the hitchhiking girl who never actually makes it to the camp. And then you have your core group of counselors that are there. And like, I think perhaps when it was being made, I mean, this is a kind of my presumption, that at the time <laughs> that they're supposed to be a little bit kind of you know, scandalous and they're mm. smoking weed and they're having sex with one another and they're kind of making jokes um, and being quite crude. Like for me, like with my modern lens, I found them like really very sweet yeah, and like same. endearing. Like I thought that like playing strip Monopoly was adorable. Me too. I was like, uh, and also at the back of my head, I was like, I would like to do that. That I- Yes. <laughs> I spend a lot of time thinking about the strip monopoly because they also have the cash in play so it's like what is currency in this game (laughs) i did like i I kind of had like this muffled memory of it as we as we've spoken about but then i mean first of all i was extremely surprised all over again to see kevin bacon in this i'd completely forgotten that he was in this he's looking great um yeah but they are i guess to our modern learns quite wholesome but i even found the way that sex is presented in this um in the story to be 
cute. You know, like, it they're not, cute. they're not like, I mean, like, I suddenly remember Fear Street, where you're just literally fucking and doing drugs in the little, um, in all the cabins, in every single cabin. And I'm like, this is, this is sweet. This is tender. Come on. I know. And it's kind of tentative. And they're keeping their shorts on for like a really long time. And it's like, clearly like quite consensual. And like, you know, there's no, there wasn't like a, like an insane amount of pressure. I mean, there were, there's a moment in the lake where somebody maybe could have had a lesson about consent. But aside from that, like, yeah, I was, I, I, I just found it all, yeah, wholesome in a weird, in a weird way. And like the, the, and then even in the evening, they kind of put on quite like smart pajamas and like there's the girl in the end and she's wearing kind of almost like a Victorian nightgown. And like, maybe it's cause I'm a bit older now, but like it kind of made me yearn for kind of that sort of sweetness of youth and how exciting it would be to be like 18 and, you know, away with your friends, camping, and, you know, there's a cute boy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that. There was a little moment that I just found so, so sweet when I think it's Ned who sees the girl he likes kind of go off with Kevin Bacon, and he just, like, wanders away. He doesn't get angry. He just kind of wanders away. It's like, oh, well, you know, she made her choice, and I'm a bit sad, but yeah. we'll get over it. But, yeah, I mean, there's... have Wait. Have you ever been to camp, like when you were no. a teenager or whatever? Oh, wait, yeah, no, I have, but I was never a counselor. I was like, a, I went as like a kid. I was mm-hmm. like 12, 13. Okay, I, I spent several summers in Russian summer camp. And that's a very specific, uh, there's a lot of like specific stories about that. I'm not going to tell you here. But that feeling that you were describing of like the being a teenager and being away from your parents in a setting where you're kind of living a mock adult life. So they the the characters here are like coming into um Camp Crystal Lake and they're sort of setting it up for the reopening. So they're by themselves. They're the authority, but they're not really adults. And It's that sense of freedom, I think, that the film gets really well, that I think is kind of the source of the tenderness of it. It doesn't feel raunchy because it's just them living their best summer and kind of being in charge and being playful. Even when the policeman, like when the cop shows up, they're kind of joking around with him. Like there's absolutely no, no fear from them. And that feeling, I was like, oh, man, I kind of wish I was back at camp. And I was a camp counselor, um, like looking after much smaller kids uh, when I was like 15, 15 and 14. And it's it's like insane. You're kind of living a, a double life where you, you know, you're looking after the kids and then you're just being a rowdy teenager whenever you can. And there's no... Like, there's no limit to the days. And, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not nice when people start getting murdered. But that kind of feeling of the endless days and the endless nights, I really loved in the film. Yeah, and it's kind of almost, um, like, it is almost a, a, a film about kind of that moment where you realize how scary the world really is that corruption of youth idea and that's so typified by that poor young hitchhiker Mm. and like the moment where she's in the car and she realizes that they're not going to stop because she's so 
idealistic and innocent because you know you as a child you've been protected from the world and you don't realize how scary everything is and how you know I mean I just find it insane that anyone used a hitchhike ever to be honest (laughs) same and like I know that you like true crime as well and like Mm -hmm. often when you kind of hear about crimes of the 70s stuff it is that kind of slightly insane innocence that some people seem to have about like yeah no they just followed they just got into this person's car and like and it was absolutely fine for for the most part but yeah like nowadays I feel like a, a, a teenager would never oh my god you know and and an and a parent would never let them, you know, be like, "Oh, sweet innocent child of mine, light of my life, off you go to camp. Good luck getting there." As much as we kind of like mock helicopter parents, like we, clearly we had to like overcorrect to a degree. But I mean, my dad always said that my dad's, um, you know, he was a teenager in the seventies, and mm-hmm. he was, um, he used to. Uh, drive like do a lot of like driving holidays and stuff but he's got a very bad fear of heights so he if he ever had like a mountainous road he'd like desperately hunt around for hitchhikers because they could like encourage him <laughs> and he got scared oh my god that's so cute <laughs> so sweet. that's so wholesome i love it i don't i think i've but always like, like <laughs> i think i've always been terrified of hitchhiking and hitchhikers because i guess i started watching these horror films way way too early but i met someone like a few months ago who was talking about hitchhiking like currently as an adult and i just looked at this person like are you insane like why why would you do that like have you ever seen a slasher film my dude yeah my god like I, I, yeah, I just, I can't even imagine because, like, my feeling is that now it used to be kind of so ordinary and, like, people, like, normal people would do that. And now it's just like, well, if you are hitchhiking or a hitchhiker, that is, like, the the most extreme members of society. <laughs> and <it can> only, <laughs> like, the chances that one of you is a axe-wielding maniac is, mm. like, a hundred percent. There is one thing though that I think like I was I was sort of surprised to on my rewatch to find that this film is quite a lot more graphic in its violence than what came before because Texas Chainsaw is is actually not that graphic at all the the no. fear of it is kind of from the editing the sound design like all of these filmmaking choices it's all suggestion and in Halloween we see a few kills but they're mostly like fairly pedestrian stabby stabby slashy slashy vibes here though like Jesus fucking Christ they go in for the close-up of things just hurt like puncturing through people's necks and chests and stuff what did you make of the the kills yeah I mean I I guess it is that thing because obviously it's a lot more graphic and I think that a lot of it did really work at the that axe in the face and the kind of slow pushing of I think an arrow yeah Kevin Bacon's neck so those are the ones that stood out for me but even just like that kind of slashing of the neck of the first death that happens in the film Mm -hmm. against the tree like it was like they were effective because I think that like that was a I can't remember who the special effects artist is, but I know it's the same person that it's did. It's Tom Savini. Ah, yes. Very talented. And you get that kind of like visceral feeling from it. But I think that it really needed that because mm-hmm. I would say 
compared to the other ones that we've mentioned. This isn't a particular, this isn't a film that scared me. No, I don't think it's meant to be scary either. Um, mm. I think that's one of the things that, like, is kind of different about it, where this is fun. It's kind of like a rompy type of slasher, like a, like a Friday night, oh, you'll get maybe a couple of jump scares, there's some graphic violence that's going to make you go, ew, but I don't think it really, there's nothing terrifying about it. Yeah, and that's weird because it for a film it fundamentally kind of has both a female antagonist and a female mm. protagonist. I think for that reason, I kind of it kind of felt quite broy to me. Like it felt like the sort of thing that like a load of guys would watch at uni together and kind of think was awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah, which is which is funny because like as it, it it doesn't feel like a particularly feminine gaze film, even mm. though it's filled with women. And interestingly, and like let's just talk about Pamela now, I guess, because mm. a lot of the um, a lot of the the kind of the the tension building is the POV shots from the killer, and which is pretty much directly copied from Halloween, which used them a lot, which took it from Jallo films. Like, we know the legacy of this, but here it's like an obscene amount of POV shots. Every single time through the whole film until we get the reveal, it's mostly we see all the kills from the point of view of the killer. Mm-hmm. And and we, we only see like a glove, which again is very giallo. There's so many shots of like a gloved hand murdering women, especially in giallo films. They love that. Um and like some some workman boots. So we're kind of led to believe that it's a guy that's doing the murders. And of course we would assume that because most of the violence is committed by by men. But then yeah. the twist comes and you're like, oh, actually, we've been watching this entire film and all the violence through a woman's eyes. Did you know when you first watched the film? It might be tough to remember, but did you know about the twist? I think I did. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, I, God, it's, it, it is, it's kind of annoying because it would have been, it would be great the sort of thing that would have been great to have kind of sprung on you as a surprise. Mm. I mean, I guess it does kind of slightly set up that it might be this uh, crazy Ralph character that was doing all of this, but um, I I actually kind of found crazy Ralph to be fantastically weird upon the rewatch. Sorry, I know that's a slight (laughs) digression. No, go for it. There's a bit early on where he kind of says something threatening and then like menacingly rides off on a bicycle. And I was just like, this is like Tommy Wiseau in the room levels of weird. Um, uh, and then, and then perhaps it was also like I had this kind of sad moment for the kind of naivete of the seventies, where they were just like, "Oh, you know, this crazy Ralph guy. He goes on the rampage, and then like, oh, he ends up spending a week in prison, and like, I have to do you know, this what the police officer says." And I was mm-hmm. just like, "Oh, that's kind of sweet that these filmmakers think that you if you have mental health issues in the seventies, you'd get a week in prison, like <laughs> rather than like being treated like absolutely obscenely by the system, but." Sorry, that's a very depressing observation, but like, yeah, 
it does slightly set up that it's crazy Ralph, even mm. but then it kind of undermines that because it, it establishes that this person drives this truck and crazy Ralph is very attached to his bicycle. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I guess the only real twist is that, um, I, I suppose you could think it was Steve. Yeah. I mean, I knew, so I wasn't really trying to figure it out, mm. but you think that like, if it, it, it was designed that if, uh, that it, that you would suspect it was Steve the entire time. I think this is where I think it was trying to pull a psycho. So it's really heavily borrowing from that. Like we want there to be a big unexpected twist reveal, and and it kind of delivers it in a very similar way to Psycho. And in fact, like there is a moment where Pamela, there's just kind of a, cl- a few close up shots on her face, and she's sort of talking as herself and talking as Jason, and they're having this conversation. That's basically Norman Bates talking to his mother as well, and sort of hearing her voice in her head and and confusing both each other's personalities, right? Yes, I know. I actually did really like that bit. She goes, well, kill her, mommy, kill her. Yeah, Don't yeah. Worry, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought that was great. And she like sells yeah. that really well. I think she's, what I liked also when she was revealed is mm. that like, yeah, sure, this was a middle-aged woman and yeah. like, a, you know, a, a slightly unsuspect, you know, not the person that you'd, you'd assume, but then mm. also that she's, she's vulnerable when she's, yeah, you know, she's not some sort of like superhero. I mean, they kind of there's there's a slightly like almost pitiful fight that the two of them have. Oh my god, yes. Where it's just kind of like throwing like just some like shit that I can find and like you know you get kind of pushed out of the way, and mm-hmm. it's like you realize that the reason that she's been able to do this is simply because she's kind of had the element of surprise the entire time. Yeah, it's kind of playing with the expectations of you know oh well surely she could never be the killer and she's not physically threatening and you know but that that little reveal well that big reveal and that speech that Pamela has like that change shift of her talking about Jason and and talking about the the camp counselors who were having sex while he drowned so essentially being a victim of teenage negligence it's like there's so much hurt in there. Like she's got reasons and those reasons are very emotional. Like this is a, a woman traumatized who never had uh, a sense of, of closure or justice. Right. And there's so much kind of rage coming through. Like she wants to kill people, but also there's, she's got like this intensity that comes from a very understandable trauma. Yeah, and like something that you can, you do have a sense of like the 21 years have passed, but this is still feels very present Mm. to her. And it is, you know, and in a way sort of the film has proven her point slightly, because as much as like these teenagers are very endearing, like when we see them kind of playing with the bow and arrow and Mm. kind of, you know, pissing around on the dock and stuff. Like, there is a sense about, like, well, what the fuck is this system? I mean, I don't want to undermine your time. I'm sure you were an excellent camp counsellor. But <laughs> but there is a sense how are these people going to be in charge? Like, do you feel that even without her presence, like, somebody probably would be dead within a week just because of, like, the kind of lack and health and lack of health and safety standards around the archery. Oh my god, I completely agree. Like, and also, I sh- 
neither me or neither one of my like teenage pals at the Russian summer camp should have ever been allowed to be like camp counselors. We're basically like drunk teenagers <laughs> all the time. We should not be put in charge of like groups of children. Absolutely not. So no, I co- I completely get it. And it is weird that when you think of the classic activities that are done at a summer camp, archery is right up there. And like, what could be a worse idea? Very true. I will tell you, there was no archery at the Russian summer camp. Thank no. fuck. <laughs> but uh, like, but what do you think of um, like this shift in perspective? Like, if you if you watch the film kind of knowing it's Pamela all along. It really becomes a different film. Yeah, and I think it becomes a more interesting film. Like, I think that like the uh, Pamela is kind of, to me, the most interesting idea that this film has. Mm-hmm. And, like, the idea of, like, if you're trying to essentially come up with a reason why you'd have some sort of unstoppable being mm-hmm. or unstoppable will to murder and to rip people to pieces that that had done absolutely nothing to deserve it you either have to go a kind of you know my you know oh this person is just like a pure force of evil which is you know leads to some great films or you kind of have to think like well what could make a person snap mm-hmm. and i think loss of a child is a, is a great way to go mm-hmm. like particularly something that comes you know from like a, you know, if you have a child that had like particular vulnerabilities, and like with somebody that was, you know, dehumanized by society, and then on top of that, like they're treated with so little care that they end up kind of drowning in plain sight. Like I think that's a really cool motive. And where do you think Pamela stands within kind of mothers of horror? And and I remember. One of the first pieces of yours that I ever read was actually a piece in the White Lies about motherhood in horror. Yeah. I actually don't like that piece that much anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think some of it stands up, but I reread it recently and I went really hard against Wendy Torrance and I think that has aged so badly. <laughs> oh, well, we all so make mistakes. So if anybody finds that, that please... Please know that I am very sorry to Shelley Duval, and I have changed <laughs> my mind. But yeah, where do you think Pamela stands within uh, the the mothers of horror? I think that she's one of a one of the great examples because we she sort of has like a level of okay, we've clearly a mental health issue. This woman has like snapped. She's talking to herself in like two voices but I did find her like astonishingly creepy in Mm. those moments and I got a sense of like I should say like a rich internal life to to this woman and that like yeah the fact that Steve recognizes her means that she is also able to kind of operate within society clearly to some level and is like Mm. a functioning person and it is simply the fact that this camp is going to reopen that means that she has to kind of kill again there is but yeah i mean like I, I i when i wrote that piece i just had my first kid and i was feeling like particularly like existentially fragile i would mm-hmm. say like i just used to like spend a lot of time kind of staring 
at my baby and being like, you can just never die. <laughs> like, which is like, it, it's funny because like, it's, it was the happiest time in my life, but it's one way you just think about death so much. Like just thinking about like, A, if, you know, my entire goal is to keep this little mm-hmm. person alive, but also this little person will be planning my funeral at some point. And it's like, it, it, it's, yeah. So I think the reason that I ended up thinking so much about motherhood and horrors at that time and wrote that thing was because motherhood and death were so mm-hmm. linked to me. I mean, it is, it's kind of, and it can't stop being linked for Pamela as well. Like she keeps, she keeps her eye on the camp. She keeps going back to this place. That's the source of her trauma. She keeps sort of not necessarily reliving but replaying the situation over and over which kind of just traps her in this endless cycle of of remembering i don't i don't think she's sort of i don't want to say or imply that it's her fault in any way but there's obviously quite a lot of guilt that she's carrying and kind of replaying that guilt and that lack of closure or retribution over and over again. Fucking hell, look, of course you're going to slash some teenagers. But Yeah, that's kind of why it sort of makes me all the, like, slightly... Un- like, I thought that the twist at the end... I mean, it's a good jump scare, certainly, mm. but I think it undermines what was, like, the most interesting idea about this film. Yeah, and I wanted to to ask you, and kind of without going too much into the franchise, but one thing that's really curious is the fact that after the success of this film, and we should mention that it was like a massive box of a success, which is exactly what it wanted to be, mm-hmm. everybody kind of forgot about Pamela. Pamela did not make it into the pantheon of iconic slasher killers. Yeah. It, Jason became the icon of the Friday the 13th franchise. What do you, why do you think that was? I don't know. <laughs> the patriarchy? <laughs> the patriarchy. <laughs> it's very weird because I think it's like so often like I'll look at films that I love and it's like, and then you kind of look at the later reception and it's just like, I feel like everybody watch the opposite film to me <laughs> like I really love the film Wall Street by Oliver Stone mm-hmm. and like it's weird to me that the message that so many people got from that seemed to be capitalism is cool actually we had a great piece that kind of on a similar subject recently in Bloody Women that was all about like people watched American psycho and didn't realize it was a feminist film and it's yeah. like and I felt like that's the same thing with this where it's just like how do you watch this kind of the premise is that this is a vengeful you know mother who's kind of caught up in grief Mm. and a very unsuspecting person that is kind of exacting these things and then like we get so quickly to like this is just like an kind of a motiveless unkillable giant hulk of a person which is like that's the opposite that's the whole point of this thing is that that's what we were picturing when they gave us the point of view shots and then it turned out to not be that so it's yeah it's just weird it's opposite to the best thing about it yeah it's it's really it's re. i wonder if it's because pamela is so much the opposite of what we expect of 
a killer in a sense where killers in these types of films are basically either the like and i'm talking about the kind of the more grounded ones even though you know the friday the 13th slasher franchise went deep into weirdness and supernatural vibes as well very quickly but um pamela is like a middle-aged woman in like a a cable knit sweater that is not what we imagine as a kind of iconic slasher killer if she was like a hot 20 something who had blood dripping down down her cleavage as she slashes people yes that will do or if she's a big hulk of a man with like facial scars who is just relentless and keeps killing whether he's wearing a mask or not yes that will also do but she's so the opposite of both of those ideas of what makes a good slasher villain that she kind of i think and ended up being lost in the in the cultural legacy of this film because not only did she not become the icon of um of of the Friday the 13th franchise but <laughs> everybody kind of forgets that she's not just the best thing but actually the real killer all along in the original film the one who set it all up she's a traumatized like guilt like guilt-ridden mother who just wants to kill people out of revenge for a son that she lost that's accidentally the most interesting thing about this film and is the in a film that is so unpretentious mm-hmm. in so many ways that's the one pretentious element of it that actually works so well and is so smart and we forgot all about it and she's kind of now become i guess a side of academic circles and and writing about the film and kind of more feminist interpretations of of horror genre and what what it means for the gays and all of this it's discussed at length in men women and chainsaws but i want i like can we just remember pamela Voorhees? She's a quite an accomplished killer, I'd say. Also has a really fucking gruesome death. Why why don't we remember her as much as we remember like say the even just the voice of Norma Bates, you know? Norma Bates then became a whole fully fledged character in in the Bates Motel series. So like people have gone back to her and given her more a fleshed out personality and life as a character. But poor Pamela Voorhees nothing yeah people think more of the hockey mask than they do of her hockey mask doesn't even appear until the third film yeah i mean it's a real it's a real shame and i wonder for that actress how that how difficult that must be to like have that level of erasure of something Mm. of like a success that was kind of built off you Mm. It's, uh, yeah, justice for Pamela Voorhees. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Although it's funny about how there's so many kind of great middle-aged women killers. And um, I mean, well, I mean, there's not that many, but I mean, Kathy <laughs> Bates in Misery. Um, and I'm also thinking, I really defend Laurie Metcalf in uh, Scream. I thought that was, I thought she was a great deranged killer and like Absolutely. it was a thing of like that she was defending her son because yeah like, fuck you neve campbell <laughs> i mean that was absolutely like a nod a very explicit nod to friday the 13th i love that i love her in scream too and also um yeah i wonder if we've uncovered some pamela Voorhees love from wes craven because it's like 
it's in that first Drew Barrymore scene, and then yeah, yeah. I would say that's that, that is probably a nod to her as well. I think it, I think it was deliberate because he was buddies with the with the director of um of this film because he Cunningham um he produced Wes Craven's first film, Last House on the Left. And then I think he was also a producer in some of the the subsequent um, Nightmare on Elm Street films. So they were buddies, so they knew each other very well and had worked together. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if those were like deliberate nods. And am I right in thinking that it's the writer of Friday the 13th that disavowed every sequel? Yes, yes, because he did. he was like, the entire point was Pamela Voorhees. <laughs> you guys yeah. didn't pick up on that. You know what? Good for him for being so vocal about it. It's like, no, fuck you guys. My my film rocked. All of these franchises are just dumb. But <laughs> and they are dumb. They I are. I mean, I've seen a lot of them. I mean, they're shamefully. good fun. They're good fun. No shame in that. Um, I like them. They're really fun. But I I just think of them as completely separate things. It's kind of like the Saw franchise in a way, where the first film and the franchise for me are completely different products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I would say that there are more like late in life great sores than there are. Um, I would I would say that generally the trajectory of the Friday the Thirteenth films is more downward. Whilst oh, I would, 100%. I would die for Saw Six. Like I think it's a perfect film. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I respect that. I also have a very soft spot for uh, Saw Three, but yeah. I mean, I think, I guess it's the thing is that, like, Saw at its core throughout that franchise, I think, had a sense of what it is and had a sense about, like, this is this guy's fucked up logic and, like, he has, like, a philosophy that he is sticking to and he has, like, insane paternal relationships with these followers of his that he tries, you know, and like, and I, and, and that sort of continues on and works to a lesser degree in certain films better than others. But like, this to me is more like they forgot what this film was about and then the franchise kept going and started and, and, and had no real resemblance to what it was. Like, I remember mm-hmm. watching, because I love Destiny's Child so much and you know I love horror films I watched Freddy versus <laughs> Jason in the cinema mm-hmm. and um Kelly Rowland you know yes die for her <laughs> she you know she, she was and she's actually really good fun in it but like there's a scene in that where they kind of return to a version of like a, a vision of like Camp Crystal Lake is seen mm-hmm. through Jason's eyes and it's just like an orgy basically <laughs> it's just you know and it's like and then he's just this unstoppable Hulk thing I mean obviously it's it's Jason versus Freddy it's not yeah. you know like there's, there's a lot of logical leaps but it's like actually then if you return to this film it is like how the fuck did you get to that from this you know i mean truly bit. truly it is uh, first of all there is absolute two things can be true at once you can love destiny's child who are always great mm-hmm. and love horror films at the same time yes yes um <laughs> but absolutely absolutely agree with you in fact like i was thinking before we started recording this franchise is literally like the fast and the furious of horror it's like the action franchise of horror right where the first film is kind of a standalone thing and then it goes batshit crazy, increasingly so. And 
ends up in space. All action franchises end up in space for one reason or another. Of course, I'm thinking of Fast 9, which <laughs> ended up with... <laughs> But you love a Fast and Furious. Film. I do. I love the entire franchise so much. It does, and I love it because it is ridiculous, um, ever building action that makes no sense. And space obviously is the last frontier, so everyone needs to end up in space, even ludicrous. Um, but this is kind of exactly the same. Each film in the franchise kind of builds on the batshit insanity, so it becomes kind of more a kill count film than anything else you're kind of there to see how gory and schlocky can the kills get as opposed to any semblance of a plot or um continuity or narrative narrative logic or anything like that jason is kind of a stand-in like he's just effectively like a stuntman in the films where he's just there to kill there's nothing to him yeah, did you ever see um Stephen King said that he really wanted to write a um a novel but he said I think he says he won't won't do it but he has like this gem of an idea that somebody needs to write the entire franchise told from Jason's perspective. This idea of like you mm. just murdering and being killed and being reawoken and murdering and being killed and this idea of like just being trapped in a nightmare of teen horror <laughs> from which you cannot escape Isn't and everyone that... just keeps getting hornier and hornier and then you're in space <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that basically American Horror Story 1984? Yeah, which I actually think was a pretty good season. I broke up oh. with the American Horror franchise, uh, the American Horror Stories for a while and I came back for 1984 because I have such nostalgia from kind of that that sort of cabin in the woods mm. 80s joy Oh, well, and I'm glad I did. I thought that was a really good season. I thought it was the worst season ever. And like so ever. many nods to this. <laughs> oh, so many. But I think that's the season where I was like, oh, God, no. Even me, as you know, I'm a huge American Horror Story fan and apologist for everything that that series has done. But I, I've only seen that season once. Once I am not really looking forward to revisiting it. But, you know, maybe maybe I'll appreciate it in a new light. Who knows? I've been surprised. I've surprised myself. I hope so. But um, I, double feature, I have to say, is um, amazing. Awesome. Yes, very, very good. So Ryan but, Murphy, I'm I'm sorry to Wendy Torrance. I'm sorry to Ryan Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote you off too soon. As uh, a very staunch forever defender of Mr. Ryan Murphy since Nip Tuck, I I accept your apology on his behalf. Okay, but like you have to promise because I feel like the, I feel like the chances of you interviewing Ryan Murphy at some point are pretty high, and if you do it, you have to ask this question because I <laughs> it is one of like the world's great mysteries to me, and I'm desperate to know. So Ryan Murphy likes to work with the same actors again and again. Yes. Why has he never worked with any of the people from Nip Tuck again, aside from <gasps> Leslie Grossman, who made a cameo? What happened there? I want to know that too. Don't you? <laughs> I really fucking do. I really do. Sorry, we digress, but I need I I need to know the answer to this. They would really belong in the American Horror Story universe. You'd think so. Yeah. Like any number of them. There's some great actors that were in there. Yeah. But we digress. And back to Camp Crystal Lake. Yes, sorry. To I, Camp Crystal Lake. I did want to ask is... you, oh like we kinda talked about this film 
has been having so many elements that we recognize from other things, like from The Simpsons to other slasher films. Kind of looking back at it now and having all the, the subsequent influence of it so visible in other things, what do you think are some of the things that it pioneered, that it invented? Oh, Christ. Um, well, I suppose, like, we were right at uh, the exact right place to discuss how it formed so much of what we think of as the final girl. Mm. <laughs> With Alice Hardy. Right down to the fact that she gets murdered in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. Yeah, but we have our kind of slightly less sexual, slightly kind of tomboyish leading lady who's... Uh, you know, quite practical and handsy. She's got her boyish haircut. She doesn't have a, um, I suppose the name is what kind of lets her down. But yeah, I'm wondering, so when you think of the final girl, do you think Alice or do you think Laurie or do you think Sally? Because to me, I think Alice. I always think of Laurie. Hmm. Interesting. Well, but, that's but, my argument, but sure. <laughs> but that's just me and my undying love for Miss Jamie Lee Curtis. But I I think they both kind of... Well, I also think a lot of Heather from Nightmare on Elm Street because that film was my entry point into horror. But, you know, thinking about them at, as the final girl and as the four final girls that really all together, I think, created, gave us different elements of what would make the final goal. But I think your, you know, your argument is completely right. Like there's so many things that became kind of the expectations of the final girl that are pioneered by Adrian King in this film. And I think she's actually really great in it. I think mm. she's a very kind of like charismatic actress. And I suppose this is kind of a weird thing to say, but I bought them generally as a group i bought them as teenagers yeah like so often i'll be watching kind of films from this time and just think like you know how like people in the past just look older yes like my son's named after otis redding and i love otis redding but otis redding died at 26 but when you look at photos of him he looks about 52 yes like actually for some reason these people and i don't know what age they were but they you they really feel youthful and I like that like particularly with Adrian King is that she doesn't sort of power up in the way that like mm. so often you see with like final girls in like the final act where they kind of find this like strength and wherewithal in them and she's quite different from Sally in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in this way that like Sally you feel like is using every fiber of her being to survive mm. and like Adrian's kind of a bit more realistically crap and just kind <laughs> of like overwhelmed and just like throwing some shit and you know like she doesn't actually rise to the occasion that mm. well and the fact that she even defeats uh Mrs. Voorhees is is kind of down to just almost like dumb luck she's just like swinging wildly and yes. kind of lands a blow right and this and like and the person she's trying to defeat is kind of a slightly inept middle-aged woman who's you know not got like incredible powers or something like that so yeah I, I like that I like this like slightly more clumsy final girl she's kind of a flop final girl in a way like she gets the job done in the end she defeats the villain but exactly what you said like it's kind of just wildly going after you know whatever whatever she can 
get her hands on like when she's piling up all the all the furniture against the the door and she's huffing and puffing and so stressed and so anxious and then just a body flies in through the window it's like oh my god you wasted so much time and energy just doing this completely useless thing <laughs> bless you alice <laughs> yeah it's weird that kind of like this this is like final confrontations because it comes with someone who's not that good at murdering and somebody who's not that good at surviving. <laughs> I know it's kind of like, oh yeah, we have these like great fem- of great female protagonists and great female antagonists, and they're both kind of just flopping around in a way. <laughs> yeah, you ever watch Buffy? The kind of really embarrassing fight that happens between Xander and Harmony, where they're just kind of like slapping each other quite ineffectively. <laughs> I mean, it everything was almost ab- that. But I found it really endearing. Yeah, I mean, everything about Xander is embarrassing, so let's not even go into that. But <laughs> it is endearing. It? It's kind of realistic. Yeah. Like I love the fact that is it is it is not a supernatural slasher at all like there's sort of supernatural tinges to michael myers in halloween obviously nightmare mm-hmm. on elm street is fully in the dream world but this is quite grounded even to the way that alice and pamela fight each other which is just so fucking funny <laughs> just hilarious yeah but then kind of i suppose all the like it's just like that thing that we came to before about like it kind of took like those kind of things that I found like really like, like almost everything I enjoyed by this is gone by the mm. third installment of the franchise. Like everything is gone. Like the, like, like the vulnerability, the kind of like sweetness of the teenagers, mm. the practical effects, the motive <laughs> for the antagonist. It's like every little thing that we come across in that convers- in this conversation that I'm just like, oh yeah, I quite like that. I don't think this is like a masterpiece, but I quite like that. And it's just like, and then they took that away from me. Yeah. <laughs> from you personally, Leila Latif. personally. <laughs> I did also love the fact that it kind of establishes the, the kind of the, the nerdy jokey character who also gets killed off who never really survives until Scream. So he's kind of really reminded me... Yeah, he really reminded me of Jamie Kennedy. Uh, Jamie Kennedy's... His character in Scream, obviously, he's the, like, over-explainy, um, desperately in, in, like, pining for a girl, will never get the girl, and is kind of the the comic relief of the film. Always gets murdered. I think this might be the first time that we kind of see that with Ned, who is kind of the jokester of the group. Yes. Uh, yeah. No. And 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 he, he. I mean, he definitely has the most fully formed personality of everyone. And I thought he mm. was quite charming. There was a scene where he comes out and he's kind of making jokes about people being crazy whilst yeah. wearing a Native American headdress. And I was like, "Ooh, yeah." That was like <laughs> very ooh, definitely nineteen eighty vibes. Yeah. Well, they didn't know any better. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, you were about to say. Oh, no, just that, yeah, I think that that was actually quite a a nice inclusion. Like, if if there's kind of a legacy of, like, you know, aside from, I suppose, solidifying the final goal, if that's something that this, an impression this left on our future slashes, then, like, I'm here, um, here for it. Because I, I, I do love Randy from Scream very, very much. Mm. But, yeah, I think he, he was, he, he was... He was totally charming. I found myself kind of thinking that, like, oh, if I was a teenage girl, this would be the one I had a crush on. Yeah, same. 
same. But then we'd obviously end up with Kevin Bacon and get hurt. Yeah, that's that, that's how it tended to go. Yep. But it's funny though, like because often, um, you know, when you we watch someone who becomes like a giant star, like Kevin Bacon in their early roles, and mm. you often like they're quite magnetic, and like mm. you're just like, yeah, no, there is this like incredible presence that this had. Like I recently watched a Yusuf Jaheen film, which was mm. like the first Omar Sharif role. Oh my god! And like. I don't think Kevin Bacon makes much of an impression in this at all. I was like, I don't think if you were watching this and you had no idea who was going to be a star in the future, most people would guess that it was going to be Kevin Bacon. I kind of disagree. I got the like, I got that vibe of, you know, oh, look, look at him. You know, like he's quite. I don't think Kevin Bacon can ever be described as alluring, but he's definitely got more charisma than some of the other actors where there's just something about the way he moves on camera, I think, that I can see. It's like, oh, I can see why I'd like more of you. I'd like to pay more attention to what you're doing on screen than the others. And it's kind of, it's brewing. Like, it's not full-fledged star persona yet, but... Mm-hmm. It's there, like I can see the the screen charisma in him, absolutely. That would soon sell you an E contract. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he's not managed to do that quite yet. But I'm with E. Apparently it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and before we kind of start wrapping up, I wanted to ask you, what is it what does it feel like kind of revisiting this film now? with all the legacy of it, all the franchising, Jason Voorhees becoming one of the most recognizable kind of killers in, in horror history and in horror franchise history. And if, what do you take from the film now? Um, I don't know. I find myself, I mean, I, I, I definitely think it's kind of the lesser of, of the group if I was going to do Nightmare on Elm Street Texas mm. Chainsaw Massacre Halloween and this this is by far the worst I think um, <laughs> and yet you picked it <laughs> and yet I picked it because I think it's also the most influential and I think that's very interesting what that says about film culture mm-hmm also I want to challenge myself at it like you know it would be very easy for me to pick a film that I was just like this is a masterpiece let me give let me just think of 97 different compliments for (laughs) and like oh and remember this is great and this is great I think it's much more interesting to discuss a film that is like fundamentally like pretty flawed and mediocre in many respects but like has this like giant influence so like and 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 to this day like we're still kind of like replicating it in so many in so many different ways and like it's funny because you know there was that period when michael bay was remaking all of these films mm-hmm. um and you know really really badly for for the most part but i think the te- um this one is one where yeah, it, it, that was the one that didn't feel like sacrilege to me. Because mm-hmm. I was just like, I, I don't think this was that great to begin with. This has two, yeah, this has one good idea, which everyone forgot about. 
And then it's just, it's paint by numbers, kind of just going through teens and killing them. But I think what's interesting is that I say paint by numbers, but it's almost like this was the the original sketch and then everybody mm. else did the painting. You know what I mean? Yes. Like this just kind of created a very replicable, I don't know if that's even a word, formula, which which kind of carries on till today. There's one thing that that I'm thinking now is like, yes, it's been redone to death, but there's one thing that keeps sticking around in the Friday the 13th franchise. Not in all of the films, I don't think, like not Freddy versus Jason, but it keeps coming back to the teenagers, right? Like some of the mm-hmm. other franchises kind of grow up or some of the characters grow up and we and we stick with them kind of as they as they age and you know there's more to add to their characters but this is just always the basic premise of well after the second film Jason killing teenagers why do you think that is why do you think it just keeps sticking to the same thing I don't know I mean it's interesting that like what you is space that's something that you'll kind of get into when it over the course of this entire season like why is it that we kind of like almost have a lot of these films are just like very brutal coming of age stories mm-hmm. that we just kind of feel the need to kind of you know tear back the curtains on the world and these like teens and be like no this is the horrors that await you mm-hmm. like okay, yeah. I'll be interested I'm gonna be talk at the end of the season, I think like we need to almost like have a recap and see like why do we want to murder our teens? And I wonder <laughs> I mean one theory that I'd have is that like it's tough to murder children. Um like, you know, and there's kind of these two points of like vulnerability of of, of a parent's life. I guess one when you kind of send them to school at the mm-hmm. first time and kind of when they're like five or six, about five years old and mm-hmm. nobody wants to watch a horror film in which a load of five-year-olds are killed. And the other big time is when you send off like your teens into the world and mm-hmm. like you're going to uni, you're going to summer camp, you're going to that. And like whether it's just tapping into like a fear that older people have of mm. like oh you know this is this is the kind of worst case scenario of what happens when we kind of put our faith in these beloved children and I think it's also kind of possible to have that retrospective fear of yourself mm. like I often think about like shit that happened to me when I was like 17 and like I'm re- you know and then almost like weirdly feel incredibly protective over my younger self and be like, Jesus Christ, you had no idea how mm. fucking badly that could have gone. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I do that too as well. I'm genuinely surprised that I didn't get murdered considering some of the shit that I got up to. But. So yeah, maybe that's why it's teens. It's There's also that thing as well of when you're a lot of the... Um, one of the big things that Friday the 13th definitely kind of established was, and Halloween did less so, is this idea of if the teens are having sex, then they will get murdered. And this this shamey association of teenagers exploring their sexuality with um, guilt and shame that should be punished. And I wonder if that's also kind of an element of fear from the adults or from parents. I'm not a parent, so I I, I can only kind of try to empathize with it. But, you know, you're 
the idea of once your children start engaging in sex, that's the point where they kind of stop being children because now they are they're they're becoming adults who are exploring and engaging in their sexuality and you can't stop that but that's also opening up that's kind of the end of childhood in so many ways so are these slashers murdering these teens for having sex because it's a way of kind of preserving them as children and not letting them become adults yeah wow that is depressing but <laughs> but i mean yeah i mean that's that's certainly that i i think that's broadly true and like there is a kind of almost if you go back to so much of like human history the idea of like a that a, it's better for a woman to be dead than impure mm. yeah Oof. goes back to that Spooky. i mean well we ended out <laughs> on a really depressing note <laughs> but um leila before we wrap up is there anything you wanted to say about friday the 13th that we haven't covered um no i don't think so um oh god i just had a quick i just i did take a few notes and like i just my but then i stopped because i i I like to not stick to them too much but one of them just reads did she just punch her in the vagina and that (laughs) is something that that happens in this film and we're back we're back (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i think that good for this film to be brave enough to show a teenager defeating a middle-aged woman by punching her in the vagina (laughs) and on that wonderfully intellectual (laughs) note note. (laughs) less depressing note bringing it back into the gutter where we belong yes Layla thank you it's where I feel most comfortable truly very truly and listeners please tell us did she punch Pamela Voorhees in the vagina let's do a twitter (laughs) poll (laughs) (laughs) Layla thank you so much for your time and your insight and (laughs) (laughs) my my insight (laughs) Vagina punches. <laughs> Where can people find more of your work online? <laughs> well, uh, you can find uh, me at Layla underscore Latif on Twitter, where I uh, publish everything that I write. But if you pick up any copy of Total Film, Sight and Sound, or Little White Lies, I will be in there. Excellent. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>